Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome to episode 268 of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. A few updates before we dive in with today's guest, Dr. Mark Kukazella. This past week, I had a bit of a crazy travel schedule attending the running event in Austin before hopping on a flight to Sacramento to help guide one of my coaching clients, Charles Caterell, who has a visual impairment at the California International Marathon. I'd been coaching Charles for about the past few months, targeting his marathon goals, so it was a lot of fun to meet him in person and help him navigate the course. While I was in Austin at the running event, I recorded a live episode with Aaron Alexander. Uh, I have to get the files for that one edited and ready, but we dove into topics around movement. We hit breathing the hardest and realized pretty quickly the hour we had scheduled was nowhere near enough time. So we will be doing some future recordings to cover some of the other movement-related topics that Aaron is passionate about. So look for that one to come out in the future. Today's guest, Dr. Marco Gazella, is an Air Force Reserve Lieutenant Colonel. He practices family medicine in Ranson and Martinsburg, West Virginia. He is a professor at the West Virginia University School of Medicine and conducts healthy running medical education courses. He has run competitively for almost four decades with more than 100 marathon and ultra marathon finishes and he continues to compete as a national level masters runner and has a streak of 30 straight years of running under a three-hour marathon. Mark owns the first minimalist running and walking store called Two Rivers Treads in his hometown of Shepherdstown, West Virginia. He is also the author of Run For Your Life. So Mark has his hands in a lot of different areas, so it's always fun to catch up with him and see what is new and and changing in his life. Uh, for this episode, we discussed running mechanics and form quite a bit, specifically how footwear both positively and negatively impacts form mechanics and foot health. We also explored Mark's low-carb approach to endurance training as well as his specific training strategy. If you enjoy this podcast and wish to support either monetarily or by sharing, liking, and subscribing, please head over to zachbetter.com forward slash HPO for options, which include joining my Patreon page, making a quick one-time donation, which includes options to avoid the need of joining a third-party platform, or simply subscribing to HPO on your favorite podcast listening or viewing platform. You can also support HPO through the show sponsors. A full list can be found at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. This episode sponsors include Element and Bioptimizers. Element makes some of my go-to electrolyte supplements, and they are running a program where you can try out a sample pack of eight for just $5 shipping. And these packets are loaded with electrolytes. I'll use one packet basically for about two liters of water, and they come in a variety of different flavors. Uh, one of their new flavors, Chocolate Mint, is been my favorite so far i think i've been historically using their chocolate uh, in my coffee in the morning before i head out for a workout or a run and i gotta say the, the mint chocolate has sort of stole the show from that one for a bit uh, so i've been hitting that one hard check that one out if you want a new flavor if you've been using it or if you prefer 
a different flavor and water and you don't want to put in your coffee, they got a lot of options for that too. So you can get that free sample pack for $5 by heading to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or by heading to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Also sponsoring this episode is my friends at Bioptimizers and their product Magnesium Breakthrough. It is the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium, and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing effects. I'll take two of these capsules before bed at night. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. As always, Bioptimizers offers their 360-day money-back guarantee. So if you try them and don't like the results you get, you can get your money back for up to a year after that. You can head over to bioptimizers.com forward slash human and throw in promo code human10, that's H-U-M-A-N-1-0, to get 10% off your next order. Links to all this stuff is in the show notes. And for those show sponsors, zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, now let's welcome Dr. Mark Kukazella onto the show. All right, Mark, welcome back to the show. Zach, it's awesome to be on again. Yeah, it's a privilege to speak with you and your and your crew who's listening. Yeah, yeah, it, it's always fun to hear what you're up to because uh, as we were chatting a little bit offline here, you kind of got your fingers in a, a few different areas that have been kind of interesting areas in my perspective over the last couple of years. And uh, I think a few of them would be fun to chat about. I think we've got some stuff just generally speaking with footwear, shoe technology, and uh, that sort of thing, as well as kind of the health and nutrition sphere that, that you see along, along the way with uh, the medical side of things you're doing, uh, as well as kind of your, your background with low-carb endurance, because you know people see that I've done it for over 10 years and they think, oh, wow, that's a long time. Clearly you found some avenue within that, but you've been <laughs> doing it for quite a bit longer, I think, right? Yeah, more than 10 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a medical necessity, but you know, I'm still running and still healthy. So yeah, I'm well, I found it when I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and can you remind me how many years in a row did you have a streak for breaking three hours in the marathon I, for 30 years? And then that, that nasty year of Boston came on, I think, what was it 2018 <laughs> yeah. where the, the, I think the winning men's time was like 218 or something that horrible storm. I ran a 304 in that mess. And I, and then I tried to come back at Marine Corps and ran 302. So oh. I called it that. So, but I gave it a good go, you know, mm-hmm. at a certain point, you got to let things go. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think to a degree, probably it feels a little liberating. Now you're like, okay, I don't have to like try to run this stuff three hour marathon no, every more year. Trails now. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter how fast you go. <laughs> yeah. You know, speaking of marathon times, uh, they did, they did just release the new, uh, Olympic trials qualifiers. Yeah, I saw that. Did you have you followed that a little bit? I was kind of. I mean, everyone I think was curious as to where that was going to go. Uh, I think everyone assumed they were going to lower the standard uh, a bit in terms of how difficult it is to qualify. I was a little surprised to see them drop the women's a standard down by eight minutes <laughs> for a marathon. But uh, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I guess it depends on the goal. If it's a participation, you know, type of event, you know, higher standards get more people in the marathon and you know, it's marathons a race. It's not like a track where people get in the way, you know, once they start the race, it's 
every man for himself and there's plenty of room on the road. But I think, you know, Olympic trials should be a pretty, a pretty high standard, you know, and I, I saw um, some of the data, like, so if you applied those times from, you know, that, that are going to be the times for the next go around into last year's Olympic trials, the women's field would have been uh, decimated from over 500 to something like 90. And the men's field would have been trimmed somewhere like, I think they're in the high 200s to like 160. So that, I don't know how they do that, do the math to, to figure it out, but they, you know, they took the massive women's field and now, now it's going to be a super tight standard and it'll mm-hmm. be a tougher to get 237. You know, that's a really, really tough time. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah. it'll be a higher goal. I, you know, I, I think you'll see, you know, 150 women qualify, you know, as long as road races open up again, you know, the last couple of years of road racing, you know, has been backyard, you know, backyard time trials. So we'll see what happens, you know, mm-hmm. as, as this year and the next year go on with the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. It's, if I think back to the beginning of 2020, you, you would have had to really, really given me something compelling to think we'd still be talking about this at this time, but here we are. So, uh, but yeah, the interesting thing I thought about that was, I think going in, my thought was if you keep the standard a little closer to what it used to be, you have a situation where you give more people more hope. And then that maybe incites the community around them. And then you can grow the sport a little bit more, but after the standards dropped, I saw a lot of compelling reasons. And one of which you mentioned, to making that difficult is, I mean, you just, people are going to get more aggressive and maybe believe that, or try to do something they would have otherwise not because you, 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 you raise that bar. And now people who want to have a shot at going to the trials have no choice, but to target it versus whatever they would have before. And that will be interesting. I think in, in the, in maybe really sharpening the top half of the, or the, I should not top half, top like percent of the sport, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think will be kind of fun to see either way, but, uh, yeah, interesting times coming up with that too. It kind of takes a, you know, kind of a sad side of it. I mean, looking from performance, certainly tightening the screws makes sense to make the field leaner, but, you know, I was chasing the standard in 2000 and hit 224 a couple times, you know, it was 222 at the time, you know, so you had, you know, I was working full-time as a doc, you know, so mm-hmm. when, when the standard's a little softer, you do have folks that, you know, have real jobs who certainly aren't going to make the Olympic team, but just to, you know, to get to the Olympic trials as a lifelong goal, you know, when it's not really your career, it's just your passion, it's kind of a special thing, you know, I gave that my best go. And, you know, if I'd known a little more about running mechanics and <laughs> injuries and training, you know, I was just a young, young knucklehead at that time, just trying to squeeze a run in on my lunch hour. But um, yeah. so you'll miss those stories, you know, about mother of six qualifies <laughs> for Olympic trials, you know, running at four in the morning, you won't, you won't see too many of those stories. And they're the best stories, really, when you look mm-hmm. at it as a citizen type event. For sure. I saw, I think it was Noah Drotty made a post and he said, why don't they just have it set? So it's not a time standard, but it's like 200 men, 200 women or whatever number they come up for and then have it more like uh college yeah, uh, nationals. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and you could be bumped off the yep. bus. You know, <laughs> so like, yeah, like you'd be chasing it up until, you know, maybe a month before. So people wouldn't, you know, be trying to stack two marathons in like yeah. two weeks. Yeah. And you could, I guess you could get creative with the cutoff point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cut it off like maybe 10 weeks before the trial. So no one's totally fried going in. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I mean, imagine the excitement of that if you're like sitting that on would like be exciting, yeah, because then like you can opt out if you're hurt too. You'd hope people would be honest, you know, mm-hmm. like if you had to withdraw, you would withdraw yeah. give someone else your spot mm-hmm. if something happened to you. Cool. Yeah. Just some interesting running current events for those who are uh, here listening for other things. But uh, Mark, I think- have you heard it? I mean, I'd love to see like a hundred K in the Olympics. Like what you're more in this world, Zach, have you heard anything about like trail ultras? I mean, ultra is huge around the world now. Is there obstacle course racing is working mm-hmm. their way into the Olympics, like long course obstacle racing, but any, anything on the horizon with ultras getting in the Olympic games? Yeah, you know, there's been some rumblings about that in the past. Uh, I I think the hard part is the sport's grown so much in the last decade, more on the trail side. And unfortunately, with Olympic sports, it makes a lot more sense to have something a little more standardized, like the 100K or the 24-hour, where, you know, the environment is going to be relatively controllable from one country to the next. So you don't have a situation where, like, the host country has this home course and it's like yeah. they're, they're, they're going to be running up and down it for years and years before. And, and anyone coming in from far away maybe sees it for the first time on race day. So I think, like, in from a, from a logistics standpoint and from, a, like, a competitive, like, fair field type of standpoint, having, like, one of the more – Road-based ones would maybe make more sense. There's also a lot more precedent with world championships that they've already had that organization put together. So it would just be kind of uh, extrapolating it onto like an Olympic level versus a world championship level. Uh, but I mean, there is some standard too with the, you know, those world mountain championships and things like that. Uh, so those would probably have some avenues coming in. And I know that's been talked about, but I don't know how seriously. So I mean, it's, it's like politics. Then, You're probably politics. In and, and money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And money. So, no, there's not a lot of money in ultra running. So right. that, that Olympic official enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, if you can, uh, if you can showcase some way to make it a profitable endeavor, which I think would probably skew it closer to some sort of like shorter trail ultra uh, it would maybe make sense. Cause then you could, you could have it in a little more tighter package. You could probably market the course. Mm-hmm. People used to watch those six day pedestrian races yeah. and bet money. I mean, it was a big deal. Yeah. I think it'd be huge. I wonder it's too, like that. as we get better at just covering these sports, I think like ultra trail Mont Blanc has been the leader with that in terms of putting together a really nice production we start seeing the profitability of the sport grow a little bit. So that would maybe be something that would get it in where we, because now we're seeing smaller organizations be able to replicate that just because the access to the equipment and what you would need to actually live stream an event with like drones and things like that are just a little more approachable. You know, Western States did a lot more uh, on course live uh, entertainment during this year's uh, their biggest hurdles, always like reception and drone usability and things like that. But imagine if you had, you know, something like a 50 K on a mountain course and you have drones following these folks around. Oh, you could, cool. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could maybe get, yeah, you get a couple of people in there who can talk well about the sport and describe what's going on. So the casual observer kind of knows like, Oh, this is what they're feeling here. This is what they're doing there and kind of share it'd be a great introductory to, to ultra running. So I yeah, think it people would... like watching Jim run down a mountain. Yeah. I mean, that's exciting. I mean, it's crazy. He like fly. I remember watching him at run down Weaverton at JFK. It's like, geez, Louise, mm-hmm. I know those rocks. He's not even hitting the ground. Yeah. 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 They, they make it look, they can make, make it, it look, look really, easy. really smooth. 
So, so yeah, I mean, that'd be, it'd be an interesting thing. I think it'll, if it keeps growing, it'll find its way in there eventually. I believe, I mean, rock climbing found its way in, uh, the interesting part would be, I, I mean, I assume they would make it in the summer Olympics, but depending on what type of environment you want, or if they went real into the extreme, they could make it a winter sport, I suppose, too. Uh, then host country probably has a bigger, uh, piece to that. So, and, you know, some places might be more convenient putting up a course in the winter or not. So, <laughs> but awesome. Yeah. I, I, along kind of the same lines with, uh, just technology, I guess is, uh, you know, one topic I wanted to talk to you that I think we can just jump right into, which is just the shoe technology stuff. Because, uh, when I, when we had you on here before, and I'm trying to remember what episode it was pretty early, I think it's maybe episode 72 or something like that. Uh, we talked a little bit about mechanics and just the way that, uh, you know, footwear maybe impacts that side of things and what you maybe want to think about when you're participating in sports with what amounts to basically a cast on your foot, which I see as a valuable tool at times, right? Like, I mean, you go into these environments where like you described where Jim running down the Appalachian trails, like you might want some protection on your feet doing that. Uh, but you also are going to be adjusting things, protecting things that could maybe otherwise get a little bit better of a stimulus. So I always like to tell folks, you know, you should get around to putting on something low profile, something barefoot, minimal from time to time, even if it's like something you have to really gradually introduce, because it is like taking your lower legs to the gym and strengthening them up and things like that. Yeah, hundred percent. And one thing I'm seeing, you know, I've got a, you do as well with uh, your, your run specialty shops, uh, two rivers treads is uh, you kind of have a front row seat to the landscape of just where shoe technology is going where brands are starting to focus their resources and energies and types of shoes that they're prioritizing. And the interesting thing I see with uh, kind of the sport going to this new shoe technology is we went from a scenario where racing flats, well, racing flats, they were like basically minimalist shoes, right? And that was kind of a brand's justification to carry a shoe that kind of offered that sort of a profile because they could kill two birds with one stone. They could say, here's your racing flat. The minimalist people come in. I want something a little profile firm. Like, well, we got these racing flats. You can use those for that. Now that racing shoes are fringing on 40 millimeters of stack height because of that foam performance, you're, you're seeing the brands lose that racing flat avenue, I think, to keep that product on their lineup. Uh, but your, your shop is kind of skewed a little more towards natural running. Uh, so what have you seen with that? Yeah, so we opened our stores at in over 10, probably 12 years ago now, Two Rivers Treads in West Virginia, we opened as the first store focusing exclusively on natural foot health. And at that time, minimalism was coming in. You had Vibram Five Fingers, Viva Barefoot Ultra wasn't yet invented. Uh, I knew Golden and he was sending some prototype shoes, the original Adam and Eve, and these were just kind of like slippers. But there was people, it was great. People were discussing the role of the foot and biomechanics in running versus, you know, the opposite had been going on for 10 years, which was more technology, more, you know, more stuff, more visible stuff in the shoe, more control of the foot. So it was nice to see just an academic conversation about all these things, you know, Jay DeSherry, Dan Lieberman, you know, Ben O'Nig, people in the biomechanics space were actually researching, uh, you know, um, what's happening to the foot during the gait cycle and seeing these 
weaknesses in the feet contributing to a number of injuries. So it certainly made sense, you know, from an evolutionary and medical standpoint that you want to strengthen the foot and fix the foot. You know, when the foot hits the ground, everything changes. So I think that's agreeable amongst everyone, whether they like minimal shoes or maximal shoes, you know, to have a well-functioning foot is critical to a life of pain-free running. And yeah, so I, I like your kind of thought there about, you know, when I was young and I'm 55, racing shoes were the thinnest thing you could put on your feet. So you would actually train in the thickest shoe you could, you know, for the theory that you needed all this protection, but then race day, you'd put on something really light and skinny, you know, and then you just like light it up, right? Race day. But, but then, you know, 10 years ago, it kind of shifted. Well, train in the least amount of shoe possible that's safe for you. And then race day, do whatever you need to do for the terrain, the road, the trail, the rocks. And I think that still makes a lot of sense. You know, so train in the least amount of shoe that's safe for you. Now, that might be, you know, like an ultra escalante. You might need some cushion, but that's a kind of a partial minimal shoe. You know, it's got protection, but it's wide and it's got a zero drop. So it's going to encourage you to lengthen your Achilles tendon correctly. You know, your toes are going to spread out. But, you know, so and, and that comfort factor, I think, makes a big difference too. you know, Ben O'Nig up in Canada is by the leading researcher on gait and footwear. And, you know, he really makes the case that if your foot's comfortable in this shoe, it probably is beneficial to you. If you're not comfortable in the shoe, then maybe think twice, even if you or me might really like, you know, one of the super thin ultras, maybe if that's not comfortable for you, it's not the shoe for you. So, yeah, so. Now, I think the, if you're listening to this, what's really important is get your foot as strong as possible. And I think that happens more when you're not running. You know, I, I did a presentation for the American Academy of Podiatric Sports Medicine crew virtually this fall and shared a number of articles about just walking in minimal shoes and what this does to your foot strength. And that shouldn't be too out there for anyone listening to understand, just like your hands, you know, if you're using them you know, without big mittens on every day, you know, just in your daily use, if you need to perform with them, you know, uh, say you're a musician or something, and you you can be better a surgeon, you can be better with your hands. So mix it up too. I think, you know, you, myself, we'd love training in different environments, you know, one day hit the road, one day hit the trail, you know, so one day use super minimal, minimal shoes, or, you know, summer, I'm running 100% barefoot, probably 80% of the time, because I love the feel of running barefoot, most of that's on grass or very smooth pavement, pavement, and it's wonderful. But if I'm going to go trail run on the weekend, I'm going to put shoes on. But my feet get like super strong in the summer, and then I can go put really any shoe on. And, you know, if you're going to do a super long event, I, I did a, my first 100 last fall, and I wore the Ultra Torrens, which are like way more shoe than I would ever wear. But, you know, that's 100 miles on trail. And no kidding, I'm glad I had that shoe on. There's no way like running in sandals or something, my foot would not have made it a hundred miles in that. But yeah, mix it up, but natural footwear, meaning flat, wide, light, and that it doesn't control your foot, like let your foot, feet muscles control your feet and walk around. You know, I have a pair right here, my work shoes. These are some zero shoe, mm-hmm. you know, roll them up and put them in my pocket. You know, there's yeah. absolutely no cushion. And my feet feel great at the end of the day, you know, just being it because my feet feel the ground, but you know, that's, sorry, that was a bit long winded, <laughs> but, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to try some of these, uh, like if, if ultra makes this, um, 
they're coming out with this new carbon shoe. I'm, I'm curious to try it myself. You know, my feet are strong and maybe mm-hmm. I'll you know, go run a road marathon again in a year or two, but that could be, especially going down a hill, maybe Boston, that'd be the perfect test case, you know, to put on that carbon shoe and see, see what happens. You know, it might be fun. Yeah. I know you're probably familiar with some of uh, Dr. Jeff Burns work. He's, uh, a young researcher up in Mich- at Michigan right now, but he has access to one of the more sensitive force plate treadmills that I think is in the world actually. And he's been going on the deep dive into the performance shoes and things like that and trying to tease out where the marketing is and where the actual performance is. And yeah, uh, some of his posts. yeah. And, and what he said, the way he described it is like, you know, there's, there's positives and negatives, anything like this. But one of the things he said that makes it really interesting is like, it's almost shifted the marathon from this event where it was kind of like an event of attrition where you have this pack go out and then slowly, but surely, as you get closer and closer to finish, you'd see people fall off, fall off, fall off. And then this one person survives and wins the race. Whereas now the shoes kind of protect your lower legs to the degree where you're, you're, it's almost like sitting and waiting. And now you see like, the pack is there and then someone makes a move because people's legs just aren't as like victim of the attrition throughout the course of the event. And we may have seen that on, uh, on display at the Olympics this year, when, uh, Iliad Kipchoge made that move and just like anyone who tried to go with him at that point was basically like going to blow up because it forced them to push a little bit past where their kind of intensity would dictate for a race of that length. And, and it's just, uh, kind of turned the marathon into something a little more, akin to like the 10k in, in sense of, uh, it gets a little more tactical to some degree. Uh, but it has been, it has been fun to kind of watch just how that has changed the landscape a bit. Yeah. These people, Zach have perfect biomechanics, you know, so if you see a 3% performance increase in someone with perfect biomechanics, you put that same shoe, that shoe will complement perfect biomechanics. But if you have like, for example, the Nike Alpha Fly, it's a very unstable platform, right? So, so like you put that shoe on the ground, it's very unstable. But if you run like Eliud Kipchoge, right, he just basically touches on the ball of his foot, you know, touches a split hair second on his heel, springs off the ground. So he's like a pogo stick. So he's not spending a lot of time on the ground. But if you're, if you think you can, and, you know, talk to the physical therapists in the know of running, they're seeing all kinds of just nasty injuries in people using these uh, the Nike shoes specifically because it's very unstable. I mean, you just look at it and you stand in it. it it's you're not like an ultra shoe, for example, or that zero shoe that I just pulled out. You know, you have a big wide base, right? You're stable on the ground. You know, which really most people are need that before they need, you know performance touch ball of the foot. I don't see no one walking into my store moves like Elliot Kipchoge. Maybe, maybe some of the kids, but they're not, I mean, they just move perfect, but the adult runners know that was going to carry that in my store. You know, I think it's a ticket to injury for people who don't have perfect gait. Yeah. That was going to be my kind of question with that is, are we going to see like a wave of potential like mechanical related injuries and problems arising from this because you change them you change the shoe to that measure then you're just going to change the way your muscles work you're going to change your mechanics to some degree and yeah someone like a professional marathoner probably has such tight mechanics that you could almost put any shoe on their foot and they're probably going to stay fairly uniform with that uh but 
the thing that worries me is you'll see some folks I've actually the, the earnings, these shoes are so darn expensive that most people aren't buying them to train in because you'd be spending about twice as much on a pair of running shoes as you would. 50 bucks or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but some people do. And I was kind of curious about your thoughts of that. Like, are they setting themselves up for failure in the sense that now when they do kind of go into a normal shoe or barefoot or something like that, their feet are so accustomed to that kind of, set up that they're going to welcome an injury in their normal state or is it even going to is it even possible that it's enough of a change that we're going to see a cascade of injuries potentially from just people racing in it yeah i think there's a couple questions to that zach but yeah i mean my hypothesis would be if you run in a shoe that's doing all the work for your foot muscles you know if you're using that every day downstream it's probably not going to do well for your whole kinetic chain you know, your gait, your foot muscles, your knee, your hip. So certainly, and your pocketbook, if you're running in that $250 shoe, but you know, if you throw it in, you know, throw it on once a month to go hit the track or something, maybe just to get a feel for that shoe, it probably isn't going to do harm because you're doing 95% of your work in something that makes your foot work. But they think about this, like say I was a, a pitcher and I had some external device that made me sling the ball faster. You know, I just relied on that for every practice pitch, you know, and then every game pitch. And then you took that whatever exoskeleton away from me and wanted me to throw a ball again. You'd be like, everything would be just even neurologically shut off. Like, how do I throw the ball again? Because all the neuromuscular response of the, of the arm in that case wouldn't work. So you need to have proprioception and feel the ground to keep those muscles, fascia healthy. And if you're not doing that at all, then I guess proceed at your own peril you know, that's why walking in a minimal shoe, I think is really, really, really important. If you have a job that entails you walking around, <laughs> you know, these days, I think 80% of people, you know, what shoe they wear at work is just a fashion for their desk, but they're not walking around, but you could stand, I have a stand up desk here, so you could stand too. But yeah, d- downstream, you know, go back to just the way the body works, right? Just like food, right? If we feed a junk food, you know, it's, it's not going to treat us well in the long haul. If we you know, junk food for the feet would be something that stops the foot from doing everything it's supposed to do. So, you know, just don't, don't do junk food for your feet. So you're saying the super shoes are the gels of the footwear industry. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, of course, like, I mean, you probably have a favorite gel in a hundred mile race and, and it's doing its purpose that day, but that's not going to be your, the foundation of your nutrition to get you healthy to the starting line you know, mm-hmm. or to, to live long, right? Not just get to the starting line. You know, you, you want to, whether you're running or not, you know, you, you want to be a well human when you're 90 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. And one more question about footwear too, while I have you here, because I know this is something that you're very well versed in, but people will reach out to me with footwear questions, or a lot of times they'll, they'll recognize I'm affiliated with ultra footwear and they'll be like, well, which shoe should I get? And, or if, um, if they really want to put, faith in me. <laughs> They'll be like, I've got something bothering me. Which shoe should I get? And yeah, I always say, well, this is you, you, ultimately, you know, seeing a specialist or at least going into a specialty shop and having them fit you is going to narrow that list down a lot better than I'm going to be able to over a direct message. But uh, one thing I'll, I'll, I will share with folks uh, that I'd love to hear your feedback on is when someone comes in, they're like, I have issues in like the knees or the hips or something a little further up the kinetic kinetic chain. I, I usually tell them to maybe consider 
something a little more firm, maybe not going, if they've been a built up shoe already, like maybe not going straight down to a minimalist shoe, but you know, something with a little more firm midsole so that when their foot does hit the ground, it's much more likely for their foot and the nerve endings on their feet to find that kind of more precise landing point versus someone who's got something wrong with like their lower half of their body, like their ankle or foot, their Achilles tendon or something like that. It's like that person, I'm like, well, you know, you maybe would be good, at least for the short term, doing something a little softer to protect that area that's bothering you. And then over time, gradually reintroduce some, some ways to strengthen that area. So you're not just atrophying that, that set area. Am I generally heading in the right direction with that type of messaging? Yeah, I think it, it all depends. You know, when I, when I see people, I, I'll do these clinics, you know, every week or two at my store, you know, and do put people through a 10 to 20 minute assessment of strength, mobility, hip mobility, ankle mobility, single leg stance, look at their foot. We have a plantar pressure map so I can see with them standing two feet, one foot you know, actually how their foot inter- interfaces with the ground. And usually that does a lot to sort out why they're hurt. You know, where's their deficit? We have true form runners, which are curved treadmills. So you can actually see how they move and if they engage their glutes, because you have to use your glute on a curved treadmill. And we have, you know, a little iPad coach's eye and you can see a lot of gross movement, even like what, where's their head when they run, right? Is their head so far forward where are their hands? So, you, you know, without getting too fancy and needing, you know, million dollars of gate lab stuff, you can sort out a lot of why that person's hurt. And you, you'll hear about their training and their training errors, you know, are they trying to do too much? But, I, you know, I don't think too soft a shoe is really ever beneficial because these soft foams, unless it's something that has a lot of resiliency to it, you know, which is always going to return back to its normal form, it's going to compress and think of a marshmallow, right? You push it enough times and it's going to stick. So something that's super soft that feels good when they're walking around the store, if they're a bigger person, especially, they put 200 miles on it and that place that they're actually pressuring it too much that they're looking for protection now is like pancakes. So they're actually, you know, more dysfunction into that. Think of like a tire that's out of alignment to the right or something. The more you're driving it, the more out of alignment, which is going to encourage it to become more out of alignment. So I think some, that's why I think people do need to go try on some different durometers of midsole durometer, meaning just that you know, that, that smushiness, you know, it's like the Goldilocks thing, you know, some people like it a little more firm, some kind of in the middle, some a little bit softer, but make these new materials. I really like Zach because they're not like that traditional EVA, which just like pancakes. Mm -hmm. So, so even the softer foams, you know, for example, like the Escalante is a little softer foam. I think the Turin is kind of in the, in the middle, but you know, it comes back to shape, you know, up to a point, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe 800, a thousand miles, you know, then, then it's probably not going to come back to shape, but those, those new foams tend to come back to shape. And, uh, you know, and then you get people just to see how they feel, you know, does the pain go away with, is it less, what, what, where I really see the pain go away is when I put them on the motorless treadmill Mm. because they can't overstride and I take their shoes off. I put them on the, say they have knee pain. You know, we go through some basics of movement and cue them a little bit on how to move, put them on that motorless treadmill without telling them much. Okay. Let's just jog slow you know, a little quicker, let them run a minute or two. How's that knee? Oh, it doesn't hurt. So that means that whatever they're doing in that motion is not hurting their knee. But if they went out and ran the way they did before they came in, their knee would hurt. So now they need to figure out, okay, how can I replicate this softer movement when I go outside? 
so it takes, I think it's really hard. Like you mentioned, like someone emails you, like I, I can't help anyone over email. Sometimes they'll send you a picture of their foot and I can say, oh gosh, your big toes bent in at 40 degrees. You need some toe spacers, but you really can't tell anything about the function of the foot, how it, you know they stand on one leg, their balance, you know, do they have inverted ankle? There's so many simple things, just like looking at them for like three minutes, you can sort a lot out. You know, if you're near West Virginia, you know, follow our store's Facebook page, Two Rivers Treads, and you know, come come up and and visit. You know, on a day I'm there, my staff's really good too. They'll go through a lot of this stuff, but it does need someone who knows what they're doing to assess them. I think, or else you can go down the wrong path. If you have some 18 year old kid at a at your local running store, just because the manager says everyone should wear a super feet and get in this motion control shoe, it's not that kid's fault. They they haven't been to school and have 30, 40 years of experience seeing this stuff. So they just be careful who you take, just like nutrition advice, right? Be mm -hmm. careful who you take your advice from and what do they understand? Yeah. Well, I'm just going to get a bot set up. So when I get these questions, it just gets redirected to you. <laughs> I do like zoom fittings and stuff. No, it's, it's really fun. And it's, it's just joyful when someone drives from pretty far away and you're able to help them, right? They're mm -hmm. like, thank you. And then you get a message back. Wow. Like, you know, like sometimes like a year later in your inbox, just want to let you know that, you know, I drove out to your store a year ago. I mean, you spent like 50, I mean, if it was like 15 minutes, you were able to help them and, and it makes your day, you know, it's, it's just a medicine's a field that really does beat us down a lot with the intensity and the workload. So it's nice to be able to do something for people that just mm -hmm. is back. It's cool. Yeah, no doubt. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are my friends at Element Electrolytes and Bioptimizers. You can currently get a free sample pack of Element Electrolytes and 10% off Breakthrough Magnesium with Bioptimizers. Details are in the show notes or at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. I want to transition a bit and you've mentioned a couple times too and just talk a little bit about nutrition uh, because you also have, uh, this area that you've been involved in for quite some time, but for our listeners who are less familiar, you want to just kind of share a little bit about your background when you kind of started getting curious about nutrition relative to endurance and kind of what, what your, your lead into it all was. Yeah. So probably like most runners of my age, I'm 55, you know, we were all raised we were just, you know, burning bagels, right? It was all carb loading, carb loading, carb loading. You know, that's how we rolled. And um, most of us were pretty well and young, so you could get away with it. Um, and that's kind of, you know, how I approached nutrition. We were all taught medical school, calories uh, or calories, calories, calorie, energy in, energy out, burn more than you eat if you need to lose weight. You know, I was in the military and I didn't have a problem with my weight. So I figured that must be true. And I'd advise my patients the same. Um, when I moved from Colorado to West Virginia, you know, when I worked in Colorado, and certainly when I worked active duty for the military as a flight doc, obesity was was really not what I saw every day. But then when I got back to West Virginia here, I'm, I'm a professor at WVU School of Medicine. It was like all obesity and diabetes in the clinic, in the hospital. Um, and that advice never worked, but I, I didn't at once think that I was wrong in the advice. I just figured, you know, this was just people couldn't eat less and move more. But then in about uh, 2012, I was brought on um, back to active duty for six months to work on a project for the Air Force related to fitness tests because they had changed the standards 
um, and the run was 60% of the tests now. And if you failed the run, you failed the test. So I was brought on as kind of the, the running specialist to try to help the Air Force learn how to run better. But I dug into the data on why people failed the test, Zach, and, and obesity showed up as the biggest marker, not whether they did PT or not, is were they carrying body weight? And you, know, you had time, so I just kind of started browsing things, reading things, and I came across just stuff that blew my mind, you know came across Gary Taubes' original article in the New York Times Magazine, Maybe It's All Been a Big Fat Lie, you know, and I read that article and I was like, wow, that kind of makes scientific sense. <laughs> you know, it was a maybe 10-page article. And then I bought his book, which is 450 pages, Good Calories, Bad Calories, read that like three times. And then kind of the short story of it, I traveled to like 50 military bases and I would always ask, these are people who fail the test. So they're sitting at a base gym and they're like, they don't want to be there, right? <laughs> You're the guy... You know, here's the skinny runner guy trying to tell us to run more, but, you know, have some fun with them, right? And you'd always ask the question at the beginning of the seminar, you know, has anyone lost 50 pounds and kept it off for a year? You know, one hand would go up, maybe a couple, and you'd ask what they did. Across the board, it was some low-carb variety. They'd say, well, I'm doing paleo. And, you know, 10 years ago, paleo was not the paleo aisle of whole foods, you know, with processed shit. It was, you know, they ate meat and they ate some vegetables, right? That's, that was paleo. You know, they did, they got rid of sugar, you know, so they, you know, got rid of just sugar in all forms, you know, especially the drinks. And occasionally uh, someone say, uh, you know, they knew I was a doc, they were afraid I'd yell at them, but they said, you know, that I did <coughs> Atkins, you know, and they would say that. <laughs> and then they're just like, yeah, that's cool. That's fine. You know, it's what you say in here stays in here. You know, so that was like validation. And, and just uh, just chain of events at the same time, I had my own lab work done. You know, it's active duty. You get your, your labs done. And my A1C was in the mid six range, which was right at the diabetes threshold. And did a bunch of tests on me and uh, put a CGM, continuous glucose monitor. And I was developing uh, the type one spectrum. So I was barely making enough insulin to stay out of the full diabetic range. And uh, in the Air Force, if you're fully diabetic or you're on diabetes medicines, you go, have to go through a medical board because you're, you're not deployable in the position I was in. So I had to, if I hadn't done all that work reading about obesity and low carb diets, you know, for the job I was doing, you know, with, with the Air Force, I never would have had the confidence to say, well, well hell, I need to do this. Because <laughs> like when I saw that, I'm like, well, I need to just stop the carbohydrates and see what happens. And you know, started checking my sugars three to four times a day and was able to bring my sugars into, into a, a safe range by doing that. And that was over 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, it changed everything about the way my body worked with nutrition and running, you know, so it took a few years of adaptation, but, you know, going back into the lab and the exercise physiology labs, you know, doing VO2 max testing, you know, most people flipped and, you know, you've done this testing with the faster trial. Most people flipped to uh, fat uh, carb oxidation at about 40% of their VO2 max, right? You're burning the log and now you're burning matches, you know, so you've got this fat engine and, but you just can't produce AT, ATP quick enough. So you got to shift to sugar. Um, but I was, uh, last time I was tested, it was after my 50th birthday, I was up at about 90% of my VO2 max still burning fat, which is a wonderful place to be. And that was at a VO2 max of about 65 you know, so that means you can run like six minute pace without needing a power bar or a bagel. And then the beauty of that is um, when they did that test, you know, the exercise phys folks, you know, they kind of like 
debriefed it a little bit, like, you know, we'd never seen anything like that before. But what fascinated them so was the recovery. Because I went from, you know, my max heart rate was like 180. Um, within a minute, it was down to like 80. So VO2 max, so, so like that, somehow like the recovery. So, you know, when you're just doing all out effort, you're just, you're like gassed for like five minutes. There's something about when your body develops this really efficient fat burning engine that, I mean, even if you're like pushing effort, like you're fine, right? You don't need, you don't beat yourself up. So your recovery is like miraculously nothing. You, you feel good, but yeah, I've been low carb and, you know, if I do these marathons and ultras, you know, I don't, and it's beautiful, probably like you, you know, you develop like a very specific plan just to maybe regulate your glucose, but you know, a hundred percent, your stomach's not going to go. Because you don't really need your stomach. There's not really this advanced nutrition strategy because your your nutrition strategy is your metabolism. And then you can kind of just feel what you need for electrolytes, maybe a little calorie, but you're not going to be limited by, gosh, I couldn't hold down 400 calories an hour because I was running too hard and I just, my stomach went. And that's probably, you know, an Ironman and ultras. It's one of the biggest reasons people just, you know, stop or just have horrible days, right? They somehow whatever that plan for their nutrition, which involved a lot of nutrition hmm. went south. So if your nutrition plan does not involve a lot of nutrition, that's a good place to be. But I think it's for human health, you know, so you did the faster study. What really was fascinating in, in that study were the low carb group of endurance athletes versus the high, high carb wasn't really the performance stuff, but like, you know, the, the lipid markers, these markers of metabolic health. So the people in the low carb arm you know, forget about how fast they ran. They were healthier human specimens at the end of that study by all markers that we could measure in Western medicine than the group that were the higher carb athletes. But I don't know if you want to throw any other questions in there on that. Yeah. Very individualized based on your level of insulin resistance and metabolic needs for your health first. Forget mm -hmm. about your performance. Like, what do you need? You know, I, I made this change not to be able to, to run better or run marathons without power bars and gels. I did it to stay out of diabetes, mm -hmm. you know, to keep, keep those glucoses remarkably stable. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think like when you have a scenario like that, it becomes an individual question to the degree of, well, what do I have to do to manage this versus someone who could maybe be eating identical to you and not have those numbers show up. But my kind of question, I guess, is like, I'm curious about just like the aftermath of, you know, a moderate to high carbohydrate, especially if you're including a lot of like refined sources, like you're going to see in these sports products, uh, into your kind of regimen, even should, should endurance athletes be, Oh, is there like a reason for them to be, a, be afraid of kind of hitting some of that stuff at a relatively high rate, even when they're in energy balance? Or is it more like, okay, now I'm kind of like getting outside of my competitive career. Maybe I'm pulling back from running a good, good bit or quitting altogether. And I kind of have this like eating pattern that is not conducive for anyone other than maybe an endurance athlete. Is that where we're seeing a lot of the negative aftermaths? I could totally see a scenario where like you're essentially running off a lot of that sugar when you're in the heat of it all. But then all of a sudden, like you get injured and then you don't stop 
the eating pattern or you stop running for whatever reason, you don't necessarily change the eating pattern. And then you start seeing all these kind of metabolic things go haywire because you're giving your body this like high octane fuel source and you're not really using, doing anything high octane. Yeah, I think a good way. I mean, it's a great question without a, an exact answer, but I think you could think of human nutrition for an athlete kind of like this. And I've heard you speak on your show and um, there's food and then there's fuel. You know, so our food is what keeps us alive as humans. And that's stuff that isn't in any package. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we've evolved as humans to eat plants and animals, you know, in some spectrum. That's, you know, whether you're near the sea or, you know, you go hunt. I mean, you need plants and animals, you know, to gather some plants. But, you know, that's kind of how we got here. Now, fuel, like if you have a very specific, you know, athletic, say you're going to go climb, speed climb Everest or something. Right. You're fueling for that is going to be very specific to those needs and the environment that you're in, what's going to freeze, what's going to not freeze. You know, you might be just, you know, drinking olive oil during that whole thing, you know, because it's not going to freeze and you can get those fat calories. You know, you're going to do a, a trail ultra and what could you carry on your back? That's going to give you, you know, electrolytes and sugar calories just to get you through that event, maybe a little bit of protein, something you can digest. But so play with both. But I think the foundation of what anyone listening should understand is that, you know, what you do to stay healthy is not like the fuel is supplement for your athletic endeavor. But what you eat as food is what you eat to stay well, whether you're running or not. That's what you need. And that's based on your insulin resistance, meaning how much carbohydrate can you tolerate before you're going to become obese or diabetic. And as we get older, our hormonal situation changes, you know, so less testosterone, less growth hormone, and this goes for men and women. So as we get to the other side of 50, our bodies cannot tolerate the same level of carbohydrates as it did when we were like 18. And we have to prioritize protein. I mean, I think if there's one takeaway from this is that, you know, we need to maintain muscle mass. That's our pension plan for human health and longevity and staying out of the nursing home. So... <clears throat> I would say that these RDA minimum requirements of like 0.8, you know, grams protein per kilo, that is a minimum requirement. Really, you need about 1.5 if you're an active per person over age 50, you know, so that's going to be for me about a hundred grams of protein a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've done some protein rabbit hole dives on this show in the past, and I've been fortunate to have some pretty... Phillips that you had him on. Yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, Stu was on. I uh, had uh, Professor Jose Antonio on. Uh, Don Lehman came on. Yes, really um, good. Yeah, yeah. So it's been you know, like, yeah, they all, all speaking the same language. They're all like very aligned with their research. Yeah, and it, it's just I think it's probably frustrating to them when they see the RDA say what they say because they're they're thinking like a lot closer to those numbers you were saying, but. Um, we don't see those get corrected, I guess. <laughs> uh, and it's, I mean, good, it's a good way to get frail. If you want to get frail, then 8.8 grams per kilo. You yeah. Know, toast and marmalade for breakfast and see how that goes for mm -hmm. the next 30 years of your life. Well, and most people, they're probably, they're probably not looking at the quality of the protein either. They're saying, well, yeah, sure. I need 0.8, I get 0.8 and it's like not even 0.8 with, uh, you know, a appropriate profile included. So now they're also in a situation where they're maybe not even necessarily using it the way they intend. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm on the same page with you. Like start with protein and then 
the the fuel yeah, the source. What you said there, Zach, is really important. So complete proteins. There's actually a scale. It's called the DIAAS scale, something dietary amino acid score. Um, but you have nine essential amino acids, and you have to have them all. You know, and the animal products have a balance of them all. So if you're eating animal products, you don't need to think about mixing your beans with your tofu or, you know, your nuts. Like you don't. If, if you're going to do your protein with plants, you can do it, but you have to be much more attuned to getting, especially like leucine, which is one of the primary amino acids for muscle maintenance. Like you're going to be, you might get more of one, but it's, it's not a, it's not like top shelf. Like a, an egg would become a chicken, for example, if you mm -hmm. left it alone. So just, you don't have to count any of the nine, just eat the egg and you got them all right there, you know, and it's a wonderful way to get your protein. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, eggs are slam dunk in my opinion. Those are usually, yeah, usually on my plate at some point during the day. So, uh, cool. Did, uh, how, how long have you been kind of, when was it when you kind of switched over to a lower carb approach? Yeah. Over 10 years ago. Okay. So we're actually on a probably pretty similar trajectory with that then. Um, did you, when you first started, did you go kind of more strict keto or did you keep it just kind of a little more. And I mean, this is the, the, I think people get confused by this sometimes. Cause it's like, you know, how do we define low carbohydrate? And like in the, and then the research kind of makes it even more complicated because you'll see some studies where it's like, Oh, 40% carbohydrate. And it's like, yeah, well, it's, not, it's, not low <laughs> it's maybe lower. We could share, like maybe we could link a couple articles. Yeah. So just defining what low carb is, I think it's important if we have conversations about it, you know, and there's no keto diet. Ketosis is a metabolic state mm -hmm. when you're, you know, oxidizing fat for your fuel and the liver will make ketone bodies. So you don't eat keto. Your, your body makes ketone bodies at a certain level of carb reduction. So when, when I started this act, the, the word keto, I don't even think I'd never heard of it. And there was no LCHF. None of these terms even existed. So, you know, I, I had a glucometer. So basically I followed my glucometer, but I probably was not as as tight as I am now based on just the glue, I have a continuous glucose meter now. And my A1Cs never got down to, to below that pre-diabetic range. They would always hover around six, but you know, I came from like full on runner, you know, carboholic um, to, you know, no sugar, no bread, but I would still sneak some fruits in there without realizing, because without a continuous monitor, you don't see those spikes that come down. So, but I loved fruits. So I probably had a little too much of that in there but I wasn't counting anything, but it was very low, probably, you know, well less than a hundred, you know, the only carbs I would eat would be some fruits every now and then. And now I'm probably like 20 to 40 grams a day. And the only carbs I would get are going to be like non-starchy vegetables, you know, and nuts. There's some carbs and nuts, but that's, but once you're like 10 years in, you, it's like, that's just how you eat, right? You don't eat bread. Like I'm not tempted by cupcakes or any of that stuff. Like I'm over it. You know, I feel good now and my A1C is better now and my every you know parameter of health is better now. And that that's more addictive than the sugars are just to wake up every day, just feeling good and not feeling hangry ever. You know, ultimately you need a meal, but you're never like, Oh gosh, I need to eat now or, you know, going to be a big hot mess in a mm -hmm. half hour. Yeah. You, yeah. You're not really a slave to your food the way maybe you would be if you're dependent yeah, on that like, small fuel tank like a little a, more. Just watch. You need lunch at this hour. You need <laughs> breakfast, mid-morning snack, snack, because your, your sugars are just crashing all day, right? They spike and they crash and they spike and they crash. 
Mm -hmm. that's not a good way to be. One other thing I wanted to ask you about it, because like part of the, I think the equation, I guess, with nutrition and what you end up ultimately doing with it is like, what's your lifestyle? And that's like where I think things get really interesting because like, kind of like you said, there's no ketogenic diet. There's, you know, you, you are, you get, you produce ketones at certain carb restriction, which I think also kind of happens on a bit of a spectrum based on a lot of things. But one important one is like your, your activity level. So like me sitting around all day is different than me running a 30 mile long run. Uh, and that's going to kind of change the way that's that kind of stuff goes. Uh, so lifestyle wise, did you change anything about the way you trained when you switched over? I, I want to say you, you kind of followed a maximum aerobic function training strategy for a while, at least. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't really change much about training because I'd, I'd read all of Maffetone stuff and, you know, had done all that low heart rate stuff and, you know, getting more efficient at low heart rate, you know, getting faster at low heart rate, even before switching over to low carb diet. Um, I think the only thing that really changed as far as my training is I'm, I'm getting older now and, you know, I'm not really doing intervals or hard runs anymore. And I never now, like before I went low carb, if I was going to go on a long run with friends on a weekend, you know, I would usually need some breakfast first. And I, if it was like two hours, I probably would carry some kind of gel, you know, because my body probably needed that, or at least my brain felt I did. But once I went low carb, you know, I, I go out for three or four hours on the trail. Like I just bring electrolytes. I'm not never worried. I don't think I've ever gone on a, on a training run long enough that I actually needed to bring calories. Hmm. You know, maybe you do some longer training runs, but you know, long weekend trail kind of walk runs, you know, just have some salt, you know, I use that you can hydrate stuff. I love, you know, it comes in little packets and, you know, just keep, keep those and fill with water. And that's really all you need. And that makes it simpler for these long runs just to have electrolytes. Yeah, no, it definitely makes it for a big breakfast. When you come back, you know, make a big ass omelet when you, you usually, you know, the last 20 minutes, you're thinking about what you're going to put in your eggs, you know, yeah. <laughs> you start fantasizing. Oh yeah, I got some leftover bacon, and you know what kind of cheese do I have? You know, mm -hmm. all those monster omelet, avocado. That was one of the more interesting things I noticed when I kind of switched switched to a lower carb approach. Was you know, like you, my training stayed relatively similar uh, to what it was doing. What I was doing when I was moderate to high carb before that. But one thing I noticed is. I, the long run experience, like the, I mean, even the really long ones, I wouldn't necessarily need to eat on. Uh, it didn't feel like it dipped performance because, you know, intensity is relatively low if I'm out for a five hour <laughs> run or something like that. Uh, and yeah, when you get back, you want to eat a lot. And that's where I think you get a lot of value in that nine kilocals per gram <laughs> versus four, because it's just, you only got so much space in your stomach. 2000 calories back in your body. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, and you know, nowadays, like my incentive to eat before or during a long run are usually either one, I don't want to try to catch up on all of this afterwards. Cause like, if I'm training for a hundred mile, I might have back-to-back -back long runs or two, I'm getting close enough to the race. I'm confident enough in where my, you know, my fat metabolism is at where I start kind of playing around with, well, what am I going to do during the race itself and start kind yeah. of yeah. running that system a little bit just to practice, to make sure I'm not you know, nothing's changed since last time I raced more or less, but it is a little bit of a different experience. And, and for me, I just remember I would do like these 20 mile runs on the weekends when I was teaching. And, you know, I'd usually feel like by around mile 17, 18, 
it would be like, you know, I'm working harder to maintain the same pace. Whereas when I kind of switched to a lower carb approach, it was just a lot more steady along the, along the way. And sometimes I even feel better on those last few miles than I did kind of earlier in the run. Yeah. It's curious too, if you have a glucose monitor, maybe some of your folks have one on, you know, when your body is fat adapted, you make glucose, right? So Mm -hmm. like you start feeling better. So my glucose always rises while I run, you know, if, if you can't, like usually it's the opposite if you're not adapted to burning fat, right? Your glucose starts dropping and then you start getting hangry about, you know, two hours in, you, you know, start fantasizing about sugar. You just kind of bonk and crash, but it's, it's kind of cool actually watching the glucose monitor, you know, just make the glucose, you know, you just rises, 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 stays good because your body is, it's called gluconeogenesis. You're, you're making it from fatty acid mm-hmm. oxidation. Yeah, I put enough continuous glucose monitors on through some training blocks to see that. And it you was see that in yourself, like your glucose will rise. Yes. Yeah, up to a point. And it will be really interesting in how it kind of correlates with what I'm doing on the run, too. Like if I keep it really easy, you know, it it, it might kind of rise a little bit at the beginning, but then it kind of comes back down. Uh, but if I do like anything where I'm progressively speeding up uh, or any type of like long interval or not, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a long interval. Even if I'm pushing up like close to like my, like flirting with going past my aerobic threshold, uh, I'll see it go kind of climb up along the way. So you, you definitely see some mobilization there, which would make sense. I think like when I'm running at about, you know, just under 80% of my max heart rate, I'm metabolizing like 80, 85% fat or something like that, at least mm-hmm. according to the last test I did with that. So, you know, I am, accessing some glucose at that point. And so it would make sense that my body's mobilizing some of it. Yeah. I'm actually loading up. This is my monitor here. You can see this is like a, this is a, a graph of what happens every day. It's nine. I see where you ran. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So it's exactly the same. Like even though I may have a different meat or fish, it's pretty boring. There's almost no variance, but every morning I wake up, and it's like 90 and then I'll go run and it goes up to like 130, 140. And then I'll, and then it just stays low and just keeps lowering the rest of the day. So the highest point is actually while running, you know, rinse mm-hmm. and repeat every day, but that's, that's kind of normal human physiology, you know, morning cortisol response, mm-hmm. go run, you make glucose and then rest of the day, it'll settle down. Mm-hmm. But hopefully I can live long and well doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a good, there's no variance. And I think, you know, when people have all these glucose spikes, we know that that's nefarious to the cardiovascular system. You know, people having highs and lows and highs and lows, because what we're trying to do is prevent cardiovascular disease. It's the number one killer of men and women, including runners. So, yeah. So if you're a runner listening to this, you know, you're not immune to cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you structure your, your nutrition in any specific way in terms of like what types of food groups you tend to pull from? Like, do you do a lot of, uh, uh, I mean, on this podcast, I've talked to people who are basically eating carnivore and people who are, you know, almost plant-based and, you know, they're, they're in the low carb category. Is there any, any attention you pay to that outside of the quality protein sources that you're going to be getting from the animal products? Yeah, really not. I mean, I'm in the human eat plant and animal camp. So mm-hmm. I eat a lot of plants. I like them, um, but I would always have proteins the priority at every meal. I would never even think of having a snack or a meal without protein being the 
center of the table, but you could probably say at some meals, I have a plant-based diet because the base of the bowl is plants. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, the, by volume, it, there's, you know, you have greens, you know, I've got a lot of local farmer friends, right? So you got all these wonderful local greens, but then you're going to throw your meat on, on top of that. And, you know, and, but yeah, so it's, but it's all seasonal and a mix of what I can get, but that's really what it is, you know. I, I live in West Virginia, so I'm not very close to good seafood sources. If I lived, you know, in Maine, I'd be eating a lot more lobster, I guess. Yeah. But wherever you are, just get those good quality protein sources. Yeah, I mean, really as close to home as you can, because really the environmental impact of eating local, I think, is huge. You know, so if we're shipping in, like say, you know, you're you live in the middle of my state and you want to get fresh fruits and vegetables, you know, to you that take, I mean, think of where they have to come from. So in the winter time, I think we have to think more like frozen vegetables, things that, you know, gosh, like, cause yeah, it's hard to get that stuff. Mm -hmm. Right now we've got some wonderful fall uh, greens like collards and some fall kales that, you know, we have locally that are still pretty good. Like they're still coming in this time of year. Mm -hmm. But you match yours to kind of what's seasonal around the area? Yeah. So yeah. it kind of changes as the All year. All starchy vegetables too, you know, so the vegetables kind of come in two camps. So if you say eat plants and animals, the plants can be fruit, which are sugary, which mm -hmm. are fine if you're like on the high school football team and you don't have an issue with blood sugar. And the plants can be starchy. Fall vegetables tend to be more starchy. And there probably is something about, yeah, we need to fatten up for the winter. Why, why do we eat this stuff? So I steer away from those starchy veggies and go with the non-starchy veggies, more the leafy greens, you know, your Brussels sprouts, asparagus, cauliflower, broccoli, you know, occasionally have a little bit of sweet potato or maybe a different, you know, root vegetable, just a little bit as a side, but mostly the non-starchy vegetables and pretty much all animal products on the table, you know, whether it's chick chicken, steak, fish, you know, eggs, the best eggs I can get from friends and neighbors. We have a lot of uh, folks with chickens here. So those little signs on the side of the road, you know, brown eggs, three bucks, those mm -hmm. people and friends. Cause yeah. then you see the chickens running around out back. So like, I want those eggs. The best eggs. Yeah. I keep telling my wife, Nicole, that like, I want to get some chickens, but I don't want to actually take care of them. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just find your friend who likes taking care of them much less work. Yeah. I, and well, maybe I should have done this during the, during the pandemic, but I think like a backyard garden and some, some hens would be a great add uh, to the, to the house. But uh, I find that before the pandemic, both of us would travel enough where it was like, this is only going to go badly at some point. Yeah. <laughs> we don't take I'm care of here. it. I don't have the time or the patience. I, I just, I'll keep the day job and buy my vegetables from people way better at it than I am. <laughs> so. <laughs> put on the retirement to-do list once, once yeah. you have nothing but time on your hands. <laughs> yeah. Just like coffee and I'll drink good coffee, but I certainly aren't going to roast the beans, you know, right. the roasteries here. For sure. Um, Mark, one, one last question with uh, the maximum aerobic function stuff. Um, when you work on that, do you use anything specific to kind of target that you're race ready? Like, is there like a point, obviously this changes over a career from just, you know, peaking in a, from a timeline standpoint to like where, whatever your goals end up being, uh, kind of post like your prime competitive years, but is there like a point where you're looking like when I get this, that means I'm ready and I should start considering doing a race or how do you kind of plan out a timeline with that? Yeah. I mean, back when I was doing more road marathons up until 
pre the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, when I could do, you know, I'd have a heart rate or just being, I breathe through my nose almost exclusively. If I could run, you know, six thirty, seven minutes a mile breathing through my nose, you know, that's a pretty good place to be. You're ready to run a marathon in under three hours without too much grief. Because if you can breathe through your nose, you're, you're in that, your diaphragm breathing, you know, your, your CO2 production is low enough that you don't need to over breathe. And that means you're burning fat. So that's a good cue for anyone who doesn't want to play with heart rate monitors or anything else, just breathe through your nose. And when you have to kind of come up for air, that means you're probably going a little too quick. And that's assuming you, you can breathe through your nose. You have bad seasonal allergies. I don't know, have you played with that in any races, just trying to like exclusively nasal breathe and just see how, like what your effort ends up doing once you kind of get a good rhythm of that? Yeah, I actually use that as one of my cues. And I actually, I, I use it to teach some of my coaching clients perceived effort too. Like I have this perceived effort chart and then these descriptors on there to help them kind of pair these things up. Uh, you know, most of them put on a heart rate monitor anyway, and they're going to use that as well to kind of guide, but like your, when your body, like it's a little less noisy, right. When you can trust your signals, your body's giving you, cause it's, you, there's a physiological switch that happens when you're like going past your aerobic threshold and, you know, past your, your lactate threshold and things like that. So if you can understand what that feels like, then you can predict basically what the heart rate monitor is going to tell you, which translates over different terrains a lot nicer in my opinion. So one thing I will do with, with myself and with some of my coaching clients is if I tell them like the ceiling for this run is your aerobic threshold, or we want to keep you kind of in a maximum aerobic function state, keep you under 80% of your maximum heart rate, whatever we want to use from that determiner, breathe in your nose and out your mouth. And like you said, if it becomes too difficult to do that, then chances are you're probably pushing the pace a little bit. And that also gives us the opportunity to kind of control that variable. So if, if we're doing it, if we do decide to use that as a cue, then, then we can start watching what their pace does. So if we can control enough of the variables like weather train and things like that, now we know, like say a week one versus week four, if you're running like in your description, maybe you're doing six thirties instead of six forty fives. That's great. You just went from that physiological state producing 15 seconds per mile faster, which is kind of a good clue for a coach or anyone training as to whether they're heading in the right direction or not. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're using that too. It's so, such a simple tool. Like we all have a nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Understand, understanding that. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a strips, you know, so, sometimes those little uh, breathe right strips can help, you know, just open up the nostrils a little bit. Yeah. I had a, I had a guy on the podcast, Aaron Alexander, who uh, he's kind of like a movement. Yeah, I know Aaron. Oh, yeah, do you? Okay, cool. Yeah. I met him at ancestral health, I don't know, a bunch of years ago. Oh, uh, awesome. Yeah. I mean, we, I have to have him back on the show. We actually, I had interviewed him at, uh, at, at the running event and we had an hour and I could have talked to him all day. And it was, we, we ended up going deeper into breathing, I think than anything else. And he was just talking about the different, like kind of messages you send your, your body by the way you breathe. And he was like, yeah, that in your nose and out your mouth is just going to be a lot more kind of calming and relaxing. Parasympathetic is, yep. is and nitric oxide. You know, mm-hmm. which is a base. there's all kinds of crazy physiology. James Nestor's book, Breathe, or anything from Patrick McEwen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Patrick would be really good to get on the show. He does a lot of coaching over in Ireland. Okay. Wrote the Breathing Cure and, um, yeah, The Oxygen Advantage, which was like one of the first books talking about this. Great book. Yeah. I've been getting more questions from listeners about getting some breathing experts method. on 
So yeah, that's what he teaches. Yeah, but either of those folks would be really good to get on the show. Patrick, especially, he's the guy who's really the scientist. James Nestor was more the curious investigative journalist, but his book is great. Like he really did a deep dive into breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, go to go to Patrick's book first, Oxygen Advantage, and then he wrote another book. His follow up book's like seven hundred pages, crazy. <laughs> Well, sleep apnea, I mean, even these things, I, I, I have my patients uh, tape their mouths at night who are having difficulty snoring or with sleep apnea, because mm-hmm. sometimes you can correct the sleep apnea just with a piece of tape over your mouth, because it changes the flow dynamics and where your tongue sits. Mm-hmm. You know, so instead of the machine, if someone has a more mild variety, they can correct their sleep apnea just with a piece of tape. It doesn't work for all, but certainly no downside to try. Sure. It costs you nothing, and you sleep like a baby. With a little, little less convenient than the machine too. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's good. Well, Mark, thank you so much for giving me some time. I know, uh, privilege, Jack, uh, you know, I follow you and all of your adventures and, you know, just challenging yourself every day. You know, that's all, that's what it's all about in running. Yeah, no doubt. And, uh, I do want to give you a chance to let the listeners know where they can find you, uh, and I can put those links in the show notes as well. Yeah, I, I wrote a book. It's called Run for Your Life, which has a lot of this stuff in it, a lot about health. Runforyourlifebook.com webpage. We have a lot of videos. But if you're into the footwear stuff, just visit my store's website, tworiverstreads.com. And we're a small business, independently owned. Very, one of the very few completely independently owned running stores. Now, most are bought up by larger chains. So we're here to serve a small community. But we do online too, and we do a, a lot of these uh, discussions and fittings over Zoom and host clinics and races. So we're one of those old school grassroots community running stores. So, you know, support those type of businesses in your community, and, and we're one of them in our community. So we really appreciate that our customers kept us alive during COVID. You know, we could have bailed, but we've stayed stayed open during COVID. So um, knock on wood, things will keep uh, <laughs> keep improving and we'll be out of this mess in the next few months, but doubtful. <laughs> so <laughs> I know from the data of the last week, it's not looking good. So but yeah. running outside is safe. So support mm-hmm. your local running store and put some shoes on or, or not and <laughs> go run outside. Perfect, Mark. Well, thanks so much for giving me some time and I'll look forward to bumping into you in person again at some point down the road. I missed you in Austin, but uh, maybe next year I'll be back. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Mark. Cool. All right, Zach. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks. If you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.